please take out your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 7 through 30 this morning. Mark chapter 3. In his book entitled The Unexpected Journey, Tom Rainier tells the unexpected journey of a woman named Kathy who left behind a life of witchcraft and Wiccan paganism to become a follower of Jesus. Immediately after her decision to become a Christian, she described how God delivered her from the powers of evil in her life, as well as her physical deafness. And Kathy had suffered from a progressive hearing loss for uh, several years. Here's what she said. The next day after I accepted Christ, we left on a family vacation camping on the beach. I found a small church for us to attend. Most of the time when I lip-read... I'm able to follow less than half of what someone is saying. But I was able to understand every word of the preacher at this church. When the service was over, I spoke to him and asked him how he was able to speak so well for lip readers. He was puzzled, as he had done nothing special. I explained to him my condition of deafness, and he asked to pray for me. No one had ever done that before. But he did pray for me. And my hearing, he prayed for me and my hearing to be restored. Next, Kathy and her family returned back to the campsite at the beach where she became violently ill in the uh, campsite bathhouse. And she just continually vomited. It was at this point, she writes, I sensed God was speaking to me. He told me that the other gods I had been worshiping had to go. Up to this point, I had seen my conversion as a lateral move. I still had my other gods, small g. I wasn't convinced that they were evil or that paganism was wrong, but now God said they had to go. I hesitated at first, she reported, because I had become so comfortable with these other gods that had been with me for so many years. And here's what happened next. Tom Renier writes this. Kathy soon obeyed. She started calling each of the other gods by the Egyptian names she knew, telling them in Jesus' name they had to go. There were many of them because the ancient Egyptians had a deity to represent every facet of life. Kathy also told anything she had worshipped as a Wiccan and anything she had remembered from the folklore of her childhood that it had to go too. They resisted at first, she said. But once they heard the name of Jesus, they left. As each god left, I saw them as they were. No lovely mask anymore. Instead, they had horrible, evil faces. And she said, it scared me witless. I knew then that these were no gods at all, but demons. When... All of them had left. Kathy immediately felt better. And she left the bathhouse and she returned to her family and she told her husband the entire story. When he responded to her, she heard him every word in detail. Not only that, she heard everything. She heard the ocean, she heard the the birds, she heard her children's voices. And when she returned to the doctor who had uh, treated her for her he- hearing loss initially, he, has, he said he had never heard of anything like this. 
anything that reversed itself in such a way. Kathy said, God did it. And the doctor expressed his doubts. But Kathy knew God did it. And she has never stopped thanking him for it. In the book of Mark, Jesus proclaimed the good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus preached. He preached the good news. And he healed many sick. And he cast out many demons. And Kathy's story illustrates how he still does it today. In Mark chapter 3, we continue Mark's account of Jesus' life. So I hope you'll turn there. Mark 3, verses 7 through 12. We have an outline in your program. We encourage you to follow along. And we see in verse 7 through 12 that Jesus encounters relentless crowds. Jesus encounters relentless crowds. And first we see in verse 7 a pattern of withdrawal for, for rest. And this is what we see all through the book of Mark in various ways. Jesus has a pattern to withdraw. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the lake, which would be the Sea of Galilee, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. So he had this pattern of withdrawing. As Jesus' popularity grew, um, the crowds wouldn't let him withdraw. And he had had exhausting days of ministry, one after another. And then he needed to pull back and take a break. And, and by the way, you know, Jesus didn't heal every person in the nation or every person in every city. He had limits on how much he could do and how much he did. But the crowds just kept following him. Verse 8, we see the popularity with the crowds. His popularity had reached celebrity status. Look at 8. When they heard about all the things he was doing, Many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idiomia, and the regions across the Jordan, which would be the Decapolis, and around Tyre and uh, Sidon. They heard he was healing. They heard about his miracles. And uh, they were anxious to see a hero, a celebrity. Uh, Jesus was a rock star celebrity. This is Jesus hysteria happening. Now, I've been helping you every week with maps because some of you are geographically... No, I don't know that anybody's geographically challenged here. But we need a map right here. One of our leaders said we've had too many maps. So this is a new map. This is different. Okay. So basically, that's the land of Israel pretty much right there. So we, we go up to the top. You see that little body of water inland. It's called the Sea of Galilee. That's the lake. And if you remember, Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters, right on the north shore. So that's where he, he, Jesus would hang out. So it says that people came from Jerusalem. You see the city down at the, down at the bottom. That's a very large city. And it's the center of the Jewish religion, the temple. Some of you are kind of straining. It must be pretty small. And uh, you see uh, Judea, that's a province. Like us, it's like the size of a county. And then south of that, you see Idumea. You very rarely hear of that, but it's like another county south of Judea. And then um, you go up to, on the right is the, would be the, 
region beyond the Jordan, and, and that's the Decapolis. And Decapolis stands for ten cities. They banded together for the sake of defending themselves. So think of it. All the people were coming from clear south, south of Jerusalem, from Jer- Jer- Jerusalem and Judea, from the Decapolis. And look where Tyre and Sidon are, way up on the north shore, on the west. And Jesus has only been out here for a few weeks. And these people are walking from everywhere to see Jesus and to get to him and to touch him. Um, Verses 9 and 10, Jesus has a plan to retreat. Look at verse 9. Because of the crowd, he told the disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. The crowd was becoming more like a mob. They wanted miracles. They wanted to see people healed. They wanted to see a celebrity for some of them. Some of them were very interested in the kingdom. Verse 10, for he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. It's like Jesus has no escape. He's retreated for rest, and he liked to spend time in prayer, and he liked to get alone with his disciples, and the people just keep pressing him. Finally, he's, he's at the lake, and he's up, he's up against the coast, but he's, he's got a plan for that. He had his disciples get a boat ready. Remember, four of them are fishermen. They own boats. And so they had this small boat ready, probably big enough to hold 15 guys. And um, they have it ready. It doesn't say whether they get in or not. But if he gets into the boat, he gets to pull away from the crowd. Now, he can stay there and preach if he wants to. He often did. But it was a kind of a stopgap measure. By the way, Jesus put boundaries on his life and on his ministry. And it just shows you how tiring And how people pressed on him, and they wanted to be with him, and they wanted to touch him. In verse uh, 11 and 12, we see peculiar recognition. Verse 11, whenever the impure spirits saw him, meaning they were people with impure spirits or demons who saw him, they fell before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Now, I don't think the people always understood who Jesus was. But the demons did. Think about that. They got it. The presence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the evil spirits were extremely humbled in his presence. And they spoke the truth. Verse 12, But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Um, I think it's amazing. I, I remember reading this as a brand new Christian. Just to think, Boy, the demons got it. They, could, they knew who they were in the presence of. You can imagine the Son of God. Uh, the Bible says that one day every knee will bow to Jesus uh, on heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means angels, principalities. It means demons. It means Satan himself one day in this moment in history in the future will bow down before Jesus And these demons are just getting a little foretaste at this point. We saw this earlier in chapter 1. Jesus did not want demons to speak for him. He restricted them. He says, no, you cannot speak. Now, why would he do that? Wouldn't it be pretty powerful to have a demon identify Jesus? I mean, that shows knowledge of the spiritual world. Now, think about Jesus. Would you want demons representing you? 
Today they're speaking the truth because they're in your presence and you're very powerful. But tomorrow they might be in some other neighborhood and they will say what they want. They can say what they want about you. They can say what they want about anything. They're not reliable. They're not trustworthy. They're not truthful. They're deceitful. They'll spread lies and you don't want a demon to be your witness. And and Jesus says, uh, he gave strict orders not to tell others. Now, we saw this in Mark 1, 23. Mark 1, 23 and 24. Just then, this is chapter 1. Then a man in their synagogue who was possessed. So they had a guy at worship in synagogue with a, with a demon. He had an impure spirit. He cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? They know who he is. That speaks of his humanness, Jesus the man from Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and uh, is very fearful in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus said, be quiet, and the spirit came out of the man. That's what happened when Jesus encountered the forces of darkness. Now in verses 13 through 19, we're going to jump to the committed. Those were the crowds. This is re-envisioning the committed. A nice way to talk about this is we say he selected his disciples. But since we're doing alliteration, we have to come up with something that begins with an R and a C. So this is re-envisioning the committed. I just want to see if you're awake. Prayer for guidance, verse 13. Jesus went up on the mountainside, and he called to him those who, who he wanted, and they came to him. So this, remember, this is his pat- pattern. He got alone. He spent time in prayer. He spent time with the Father. It seemed to reinvigorate him. It brought him clarity. It refreshed him to do this. Um, and Jesus does this after a very tiring ministry. You know, he could, let's go take a nap. Jesus wants to go up on a mountainside. Now, it doesn't say what he does here. We'll go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 35, and this is what we see his pattern is very early in the morning, but this is at night. This is at the end of his day that he's gone up on the mountain. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This was a pattern that he develops in the uh, book of Mark. And remember, Peter is the eyewitness. Peter is there. And, and Mark is recording the words and story from Peter. And we get these little glimpses that nobody else reports in the other Gospels. And it's Peter right there. Remember, Peter is a, is a man of action, and he sees Jesus as a doer of deeds. Now, this is also evidenced in Luke's account, this idea of Jesus getting a load of prey. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, this is the very same event of uh, Mark 3, uh, 12 and 13. One of those, or 13 and 14, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. That's what he did after that extremely busy day. It's the same uh, passage. Luke says he went up to the the mountain to pray. Mark just says he went up to the mountain. And this is where he's going to appoint the 12. When morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. This is how Jesus uh, made major decisions. He was exhausted and he spent the whole night in prayer. And then he appoints the 12 disciples. It says he designated them as apostles because he had a plan. The plan was 
I'm going to pick 12, and then I'm sending them. Apostles. An apostle is a sent one. So these guys are going to get, they're getting called, they're going to be equipped, and they're going to be deployed. And uh, very clearly, it's about being deployed. Um, Modern day Christianity, we have this way of we, we come to church and we sit and we listen and then we go. We go home, but we don't get deployed, meaning we don't get placed into service. We don't always think about Monday as a ministry and Tuesday as a ministry. Um, so, um, verse 14 picking the apostles, he appointed 12. Why 12? There seems to be a very significant connection in the Bible between the 12 apostles, or the 12 that Jesus picks here, and the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel being the people of God in the Old Testament. But this is a new group of people, and they have new representatives, and Jesus has picked them, and they're going to be 12 very ordinary guys, 12 disciples. And that ordinariness should really encourage us. Because these weren't flashy guys, they weren't highly trained, they weren't necessarily very smart. And they'd certainly made plenty of mistakes. Um, so Jesus handpicks these 12. Why 12? Well, these 12 are going to f- um, be the foundation of a new community. They're going to be a foundation of a new work of God. They're going to be the foundation of a new form that doesn't exist yet. Um, It's going to be uh, a new wineskin. Remember the wineskins? It's going to be a new container of what God is doing. And God is going to put new wine in it in Acts chapter 2 when he brings the Holy Spirit to start the church. And there's going to be a new form, a new community, and it will become the church in Acts chapter 2. The twelve. And then we see the um, purpose of the apostles in 14 and 15. Number one is that they might be with him. That was Jesus' plan, that his disciples would spend an extended time with him. And it proves to be about three years. And uh, they would be with him day after day. And they would see him eat. They would see him rest. They would see him pray. They would see him uh, just serve hour after hour. Uh, They would hear him teach. They would be able to debrief with him. They could ask him any dumb question, and he was okay with it. And they were just going to, they were going to learn about Jesus. Um, Later, Jesus will send them, he's going to send them right away, but he's eventually going to send them into the world with all of his authority and to make disciples of all nations. That's the plan. He's going to start something new, a new, new church. So, purpose was that they might be with him. That was part of it. Secondly, that he, he might send them to preach. It was not just for hanging out. They were equipped to go out and represent him through preaching. He's training them, and now he's going to be sending them. He's been the one proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now there's going to be 12 more proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, and his ministry will be multiplied. So, remember, they're not just to sit and soak. They were strategically deployed. Just as Jesus strategically deploys you every week, no matter who you are. We come together on Sunday and we gather as a body. We are the body of Christ gathered. 
And tomorrow will be the body of Christ scattered, and he will be deploying you to wherever your place of work or wherever you go to school, you will be deployed as his representative to live for him and to have an impact in uh, your environment. Uh, He's going to deploy you as um, school teachers and nurses and doctors and housewives and students and technicians and bankers and salespersons and computer geeks and all to represent Jesus. That's how he his plan is to deploy. And then verse uh, number three, finally, in verse 15, to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus is going to delegate his authority to his 12 so that they can also drive out demons. Think about what was happening in Jesus' ministry. He said, um, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's a different translation. And he's saying the kingdom is at hand The kingdom because oh, the king is present. And how do we know this? Well, people are repenting and believing for the forgiveness of sins. And there are miracles all over the place. And demons are being cast out by Jesus. And the kingdom of God is having influence. And it's advancing one life at a time. And that should have just woken everybody up to what God is doing something new. And now Jesus is giving that same authority to his disciples. Because this is going to expand. This is going to mushroom. The presence of the kingdom of God. Influence of the kingdom. Lives are being changed. Sins are being forgiven. And remember, those miracles are signs to tell Israel to wake up. Listen to your messenger and listen to the message. Jesus has also delegated this authority. Think about this. Jesus has delegated his authority to you if you are a follower of Christ. One, he does that in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, when he tells us as a church to go make disciples. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul describes Jesus as far above all rule, power, and authority. Jesus, in his resurrected uh, state right now, is far above the angels, demons, everything. Far above. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 says, If you're a follower of Christ... Jesus has given you a position right beside him. And you are far above all rule, power, and authority. You have been delegated that you can have authority over the demonic realm. It's not to scare you. It's something to understand. You have authority. We we won't take the time to talk about all that that goes into, but I just want you to know it. Um, verses 16 through 19, we come to the personal names of the apostles. We're still doing the alliteration. Here we go, verse 16. These are 12. He appointed Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonarish. I can't even say that, Bonarish. It's not right, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, and son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, these are the 12, okay? The 12. From this point on, first time mentioned in the book of Mark, from this point on, it becomes a technical um, word or phrase for these 12 particular disciples. So when you hear the 12, it's this group. There's not an extra person in here. It's just the 12. 
Uh, we see this in Mark 4.10. Uh, when he was alone, the 12. And even the uh, editor of the NIV wants to show us it's technical. They even capitalize 12. Not that it's capitalized in the original language, but it's capitalized for us in English. When he was alone, the 12 and others around him ask him about the parables. Next, next passage. Mark 9.35, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Mark 11.11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went to Bethany with uh, 12. I think we know who they are. It's the same group. Now, we're going to make a little change. Acts chapter 6, verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Slight difference here. But what's happened? Some of you know, one of the original twelve is missing. Judas Iscariot has taken his own life by now. This is after the resurrection. This is after the ascension. Jesus has already got back, gone back to heaven. So the disciples... Add one more to their number in Acts chapter 1, and his name is Matthias, and now they will be called the Twelve. So, kind of an important understanding. Now we're going to run through the disciples very quickly. Number one, Simon called Peter, also called Cephas. Simon was a Hebrew uh, name. Peter was his Greek name. Cephas was his Aramaic name. Peter and Cephas means stone or rock, and Jesus gave Peter, this name. Peter was not a rock, though. Peter waffled all over the place. But Jesus was designating who he would become. He would become a rock. He would would develop rock-solid character and lead the church. But he's in process. Secondly, James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John the Apostle, or John, the son of Zebedee, James was in a fishing business with his brother John and his father. Uh, He was the first Christian martyr. You may have not known that. Acts chapter 12, uh, James, the son of Zebedee, was put to death with a sword by King Herod, the first Christian martyr. This is after the church got started. Thirdly is John, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, also a fisherman, who was a disciple whom Jesus loved. I think he loved them all, but John was special. He wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and he wrote the book of Revelation, and he's not John the Baptist. Andrew, brother of Peter, another fisherman, he brought Peter to meet Jesus. Number five, Philip, from Peter and Andrew's hometown of Bethsaida. He was an early disciple, and he sometimes asked questions of Jesus just after Jesus explained the answer, and then he asked the question again. Bartholomew, also called Nathaniel. Bartholomew means son of Tolmai. We don't know much about Bartholomew, other than he was one of the early disciples. Matthew, also called Levi. We've heard about Matthew already. He was a tax collector. He wrote the book of Matthew, and he seemed to have quite a bit of Old Testament knowledge. All you have to do is read the book of Matthew and see he has a pretty good knowledge of Old Testament scripture. Then there's Thomas, also called Didymus. And he's the one who doubted. He was the doubting Thomas. He couldn't believe the resurrection had happened until he had solid evidence. And he said he had to touch. And when Jesus showed up, he said, okay, I got it. No touching. 
my Lord and my God. That was Thomas. And then James, the son of Alphas, called James the Less. Uh, Very little is known about James the Less. He's probably less because he was shorter than the other James. That's how they talked about them. Number 10 is Thaddeus, also called Judas, son of James. Uh, This is Judas, not Iscariot. So you have two Judases in the group. Uh, He's only called Thaddeus uh, in rare occasions like this. Little Little is known about him. Number 11, Simon the Zealot. This is Simon, not Peter. He was a zealot, likely because of his radical political views. You remember, Rome ruled the world and Rome ruled Jerusalem And the zealots weren't very happy about that. So they were hoping to remove the Romans. Very little chance that they could pull it off. But he was probably a bit of a radical before he became a follower of Jesus. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus, that's the last one. All of the other 11 are from Galilee in the north. Judas is the only one from the south. He's from a town called Kerioth in southern Israel. He wanted to be with Jesus. He became the treasurer of the group. He used to embezzle funds from Jesus' ministry. That'd be pretty cool, huh, to steal from Jesus. Uh, He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He kissed Jesus to identify him in the betrayal. And uh, after it was all over, he, uh, he was an instrument in the hands of Satan. And after it was all over, he had such remorse that he hung himself and took his own life. And I'm guessing that that was even inspired by Satan. Okay, finally, verses 20 through 30. Next, Jesus is rebuked by the critics, staying with the R's and the C's. Pressed uh, by the crowds, verse 20, Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. You see this theme? The crowds, they just press in on Jesus. They want to be with him. He has definitely celebrity status. Some of it is celebrity worship, and some are truly seeking honest answers or seeking the truth. Long hours. They didn't take a break even to eat. Meeting people, healing people, casting out demons. And then, verse 21, he's pursued by his family. Look at verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. There we go. Family. So um, his family are in Nazareth. They're a little bit further south. He's up around Capernaum. There's a pretty good jaunt. So his family's got this. They, they understand what Jesus has got this Messiah complex going on, and he's saying all kinds of things, and all these people are around, and he's not eating. We're going to go take charge of him. It's like arresting him. It's going to be an intervention. And they're going to try to get Jesus back into uh, his right mind. So that's what we're going to talk about next week because our passage in verse 31 through 35 goes immediately to his family. So you'll learn a lot more about his family uh, next week. So don't be surprised sometimes if family uh, doesn't understand what God is doing in your life. Sometimes it's even Christian parents when, when Christian young adults get excited about doing something for Jesus. Even sometimes Christian parents try to protect them and hold them back. And um, not surprising at all if non-Christian parent doesn't understand when their child wants to make a commitment to follow Christ and they may want to serve him in some way, may want to become a missionary. It's not 
surprising that people don't understand it. Verse 22, provoked by critics. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, because by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Now, because Jesus is so popular, it says in the text that the teachers, these were scribes, teachers of the law, they came down from Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is in the south, and the way, they're way up in the north. You would think they might say, go up to, to Galilee. Nope. Jerusalem is 2,400 feet above uh, sea level. Capernaum is 600 feet below sea level. So you can see why if they're going to go down 3,000 feet to uh, Capernaum. But these are the teachers of the law. So they hear about this popularity. The crowds are coming all over from all over to see Jesus. This is threatening for the leaders of Jerusalem. And do you remember uh, back in chapter 3, verse 6, it said, Then the Pharisees uh, went out and began to plot with the Herodians that they might kill Jesus. There's already a plot in Jerusalem going on is how they're going to get rid of Jesus because he is causing problems. This popularity is uh, kind of put a bit of an obstacle in their way. So uh, they accused him of being possessed by Beelzebul. This is a name for Satan, prince of the demons. This is a very serious charge. It's just easy to read by this. This is super serious. They are acknowledging, acknowledging the miracles. They're saying, we, we see that Jesus is healing people and he's driving out demons. We get that. They're not saying these are... Uh, not happening. They're not saying these are fake. But they're saying Jesus is doing this with satanic power. They see Jesus in person perform miracles and cast out demons. And they conclude that Jesus is from Satan. And this is going to be a serious charge. Jesus answers with parables. Proclamation in parables, verses 23 through 27. Verse 23, so Jesus called them over. He calls these leaders from Jerusalem over to him, he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Good question. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Good point. If a house is divided against itself, the house cannot stand. You know what? That's true. And Abraham Lincoln quoted that in 1858 in a very famous speech where he said, the house divided cannot stand, meaning the nation of the United States cannot stand with slavery and freedom in the same nation. There has to be a change. Verse 26, Jesus brings a conclusion to this parable. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand and his end has come. It is not logical for Satan to divide and conquer himself. That's Jesus' point. In fact, think about what has happened. Jesus has been advancing the kingdom of God one life at a time. He's proclaiming the forgiveness of sins by believing and repenting. And uh, he's been healing. He's been showing that he's a messenger from God. And he's been casting out demons. And the kingdom is just moving forward against the gates of hell. That's what's happening. And they're saying, no, it's Satan. 
Verse 27, the second parable. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house. This is Jesus. Without first tying him up, then he can plunder the strong man's house. And so Jesus kind of makes this into an allegory. No one can enter a strong man's house. The strong man is Satan. Jesus has entered the strong man's house. Really, the world, because Satan is the god of this age and the prince of the power of the air since the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And now Jesus, in the incarnation, has come into his turf, into uh, Satan's turf. And Jesus has already spent 40 days in the wilderness in prayer when he was tempted by Satan and um, easily vanquished Satan, and Satan left him. That's why the demons are on the run with the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is plundering the strong man's house by taking back lives and casting out demons. He is just forwarding, forging ahead. And he's saying no one can enter the strong man's house unless you bind him. And that's what he's done. He's, he's, he's uh, kind of hamstrung Satan's ability to, do, to, to serve in this world. And Satan, with uh, the, resurrection, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus is proof of the victory of Jesus. But it's right now, Satan is defeated, but he has some freedom to work. And he's very busy right now, as he knows he's doomed. Pronouncement and judgment, 28 through 30. Um, look at verse 28. Truly I tell you, this means this is important when he says truly. It's like amen and amen. I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. Got that? Now, this is crucial. This is one of the most misunderstood passages in the New Testament. Most people see verse 29, the unpardonable sin, and that's all they see. They read right past verse 28. I tell you that, tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, including blasphemy. Um, every sin can be forgiven. Should I say that again? Every sin can be forgiven. There is nothing that you can do that can't be forgiven. However, if someone continues with the hardness of heart, like the Jewish teachers of the law, think about what's happened here. Jesus is present. He is doing miracles. He is preaching the word of God. It is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And he is casting out demons. And you are there, and you are watching, and you go, that's Satan. Totally misread, totally misunderstand, totally don't get it. These guys have, know the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. They know every scripture that refers to the Messiah. And they say, this is Satan. This is a hard heart. This is a calloused heart. And, it's, and this person is super religious. So here's this, there's a sense that this sin could only happen in the presence of Jesus. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, saying what Jesus is doing 
is from Satan. Now, anybody's sin can be forgiven. And potentially, even those leaders, if they repent later, they could be forgiven. The greatest example in New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Who was he? He was one of these crazy religious guys. He was a Pharisee. He attacked the Christian church. He had them arrested. He had them put in jail. He had them tortured. And he had some of them put to death. He thought he was right. And yet, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. That changed everything for Paul. He got it that time. But what if he, what if he had met Jesus on the road to Damascus and he says, you're from Satan? That might have been enough. So, can you commit the unpardonable sin today? Only if your heart is so hard that you refuse to see who Jesus is. If you choose to refuse over and over, that would be blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, you never became a follower of Christ. You never understood. You never had your sins forgiven. Does that make sense? It's about witnessing the very work of God and rejecting it over and over until your grave. Any sin can be forgiven. Unbelief can be forgiven if somebody approaches God and wants to be forgiven and places their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, let me look at some passages to... Um, I hope this encourages you, John five twenty four. This is one of those, Jesus says, okay, this is important because he says very truly at the front, amen and amen. I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So whoever hears, have you heard Jesus Christ? Have you heard what God has said about his son? Whoever hears and believes, have you, have you believed what God said about Jesus? That he died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for your sin. Have you believed? Um, has eternal life right now. Present tense. The, the, the tense of Scripture is extremely important here. It's right now. It's not when you die. It's not next week. It's right now. If you believe you have eternal life right now. Here's a promise from Jesus. You will not be judged. You will not be condemned. That's future tense. You will. Does that make sense? You will not be. If you believe, you will not be condemned. But you have crossed over from death to life. Past tense, present tense, or future tense. It's past. It's already happened. Already crossed over from death to life. You can't go back. It's not up to you. It's a gift of God. Okay. Uh, one other passage would be John ten twenty four through 30. This is an interesting one. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. How many times has Jesus told them? How many times has Jesus showed them? This is the end of his ministry. This is down to the last month of his ministry. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. This sounds like maybe blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. What works? The miracles, the healing, the casting out of the demons. Next slide. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In fact, according to Matthew chapter 25, they might be the goats. When Jesus divides between believers and unbelievers, the sheep and the goats, this might, these guys might be in the goat group. My sheep, here they are. These who are born again and follow me. My sheep, listen to my voice, 
They can hear, I know them, we have a personal relationship, and they follow me. How can you tell a follower of Christ? They're following. If you're not following, it's unclear. I give them eternal life. It's a gift. He does it. You don't earn it. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Never. How long is never perish? No one. No one. You cannot take yourself out of Jesus' hand. Satan can't take you out of Jesus' hand. And no one can. And you will never perish. This is a promise of Jesus. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. So do you think you can do something to remove yourself from the Father's hand? You do not have the authority or the power to do it. Now, the main thing is, if you're a sheep, you should follow. Don't confuse us. Follow. Be a follower of Jesus. Live like a follower of Jesus. So we can see that you're following Jesus. So, Jesus dealt with the relentless crowds. He re-envisioned the committed and he rebuked his critics. Next week, we're going to talk more about his family. And we're going to see four different hearts that Jesus preached to week by week. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for the opportunity to look at the life of Jesus and to learn about him and to gain principles uh, from his life that help us. Father, give us ears to hear and um, give us the desires to follow. Give us understanding. And may we honor you with our lives. And may we just have a tremendous confidence in the word of God. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.